Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Greetings and welcome back to the Right Take. I'm Mark Tapson, your host, and I have a couple of topics today to talk about that might not seem related at first, but I'll be bringing on my guest in just a bit, who has written books about both, and he will make the connection clear, I hope. Let me begin by sharing with you an article from the Sunday Telegraph in the UK, something you may have seen yourself, a report that a recent YouGov poll determined that nearly one half of young people in the United Kingdom believe the UK was founded on the back of systemic racism and remains structurally racist today. That's 42% of 18 to 24-year-olds who believe that the founding of their country, the United Kingdom, which contains England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, is rooted in a white supremacy that continues to plague the country. By the way, that article ties into another news item over the weekend that the virtue-signaling former royals, narcissist Meghan Markle and her milk-toast husband Harry, they are to receive an award from the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization for fighting structural racism within England's royal family. This is beyond ridiculous. Of all the serious activists in the world who are working in the trenches in defense of human rights, sometimes at risk to their own lives, and this organization gives its award to Meghan Markle for her absolutely baseless claim that the royal family she married into, which transformed her overnight from a nobody to a life of wealth and fame, were racist toward her. Unbelievable. She and her ingrate of a husband who participates in this ugly slander against his own family, they are utterly without shame. Anyway, the reason I bring them up is because their accusation of systemic racism in the royal family echoes this false belief of the 42% of young people in the poll I mentioned. Now, I'm not going to get into an historical explanation right now why the whole notion of the UK being founded in systemic racism is is demonstrably, laughably false, because the point I want to focus on is that this poisonous indoctrination has infected the UK's entire education system just as it has here in the United States. And the perpetrator is critical race theory, or CRT. I'm sure you've heard of it. Very briefly put, it's the ideological lie that only people who hold power can be racist, and only whites hold power. It's the ideological lie that something called whiteness is inherently racist, and that the entire history of Western society is one of colonialist oppression against non-whites, and continues to be, by virtue of a racism that is quote-unquote baked into the system. The poll that I mentioned a moment ago indicates that CRT is being widely taught in British schools, and that that 42% of 18- to 24-year-olds believe that schools should teach students that Britain was founded on racism. That is in contrast to only 25% of the students who said it should not be taught in Britain's educational system. The same poll, by the way, revealed that 38% of young people reportedly believe that a statue of Winston Churchill should be removed from outside Parliament because he is deemed to have held racist views. And about the same amount of young people disagreed with moving the statue, but that's a much smaller fraction than the 68% of the total UK population who believe the statue should be kept. So, What that shows is that it's the influence of schools on young people that is to blame. In fact, the poll revealed 
that 59% of individuals leaving school describe themselves as having been taught or told about white privilege, systemic racism, or unconscious bias by at least one adult in their learning institution. Now, I feel pretty sure that those percentages are higher there than a similar poll would show here in the United States, but the same subversive anti-Western indoctrination is happening here. Critical race theory is spreading like a cancer through schools from pre-K all the way through grad school. And no small part of that indoctrination is due to the metastasizing spread of the New York Times' 1619 Project, a fiction claiming to be a work of historical scholarship whose intent is to serve as a new origin story of America, a revised cultural narrative claiming that America's founding is rooted not in liberty and justice for all, but in slavery and racism. Um, You may recall in a previous episode, I interviewed scholar Mary Graybar regarding her important work debunking the 1619 Project. Well, today my guest will be another scholar whose own earlier book also demolishes the 1619 Project as a work of historiography. The other topic on my mind, which as you'll see later is related, is the ugly polarized reality of the not-so-cold civil war we are engaged in in this country between left and right. I think we can all agree that while politics has always been pretty raucous and rowdy, Whatever civility, mutual respect, and rational debate there was in our political discourse have all been replaced by a hair-trigger performative outrage, by the scorched-earth warfare of cancel culture, and even by violence. How did we come to this point? And is this state of rage destined to be a permanent feature of our political landscape? Well, the perfect person to ask those questions of, and more is my guest coming up next on The Right Take. Stay tuned. I'm excited today to bring Peter Wood to the podcast. He's someone I had on my guest bucket list from the very launch of The Right Take, but my fellow podcaster at the Freedom Center, Jason Hill, beat me to it and had Dr. Wood on in a very early episode, so I had to hold off for a little bit. Peter Wood is the president of the National Association of Scholars. He's the author of what I consider the essential antidote to the 1619 Project. His book titled 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, which is now out in paperback, by the way. His most recent book is titled Wrath, America Enraged, And I want to talk about both of those today. Peter, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for making the time to join us. Uh, Let's talk first about your book, 1620. I've spoken before on the podcast about the 1619 Project, and and I even had your friend Mary Graybar on a previous episode to discuss her book, Debunking It. So our listeners have some background on it, and they've no doubt heard or read a lot about it elsewhere. First, let me ask, why is your critique called 1620? 1620 was the year in which the uh, Mayflower arrived off the coast of Massachusetts. And in November of uh, 1620, the pilgrims and the non-religious component on board, the people that the pilgrims called the strangers, uh, 
almost came to blows. They thought that uh, they were going to go their separate ways, and uh, the contention risked the survival of both parties. So they came to an agreement, which we know as the Mayflower Compact. Uh, that Mayflower Compact established for the first time a model for how self-government could take place in the new world. It was really quite an extraordinary departure from almost all of uh, European history to that point. So this was a, a small community that was without a king, without even authorization from the crown to be where it was. And they decided that they would govern themselves. They decided they would do that by open elections. And they would practice religious tolerance. The, uh, the pilgrims aren't these days thought of as people who were especially tolerant of non-believers, but in fact they were. And they created a, a little community uh, that abided under those rules for half a century. So it's an extraordinary success, and it represents the true beginning of self-government uh, among the British colonies, anyway, in the New World. Why I chose that date was that its proximity to 1619 is self-evident. The claim of the 1619 project is that America was really founded in August of 1619 with the arrival of a pirate ship that brought 20-some slaves to Virginia. Uh, my book, of course, disputes that claim, but I thought the best way to dispute it was to put that notion in proximity to another event of greater importance. So rather than acknowledge and even celebrate that um, actual origin story of, of America and its um, very unique beginnings, they want to, the creators of the 1619 Project, especially its primary writer, and I think the lead on the project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, they want to reframe American history, which um, establishes America's origins, not in a sense of freedom, you know, liberty and justice for all, but in uh, uh, being rooted in slavery and racism. Is that right? Yes, I would say that the basic story they're telling is one of racial oppression, uh, and uh, reframing is one of the verbs they use for this story, but they're also claiming that the notions of uh, freedom and equality were simply uh, masks to hide the oppression. They, they were unwilling to put forward that their real goal was to create this uh, uh, racial hierarchy, and instead they put in all this flowery language that we see on through the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address and so on, uh, just to hide the ugly truth. So um, I should say that uh, while I am out on the road quite frequently speaking about various things, when I mention my book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, a frequent response is, what's the 1619 Project? So while this thing looms very large, perhaps for you and me and the listeners to this podcast, I would say that my way of gauging public knowledge of this suggests that it hasn't really penetrated to the vast majority of Americans what happened when the New York Times in August of 2020 published its 100-page uh, uh, diatribe 
uh, and later on it's a 600 page book on the same subject uh, what what has not registered with the public is that the times promise that this would be rolled out as a curriculum in the nation's schools has been kept uh, some version of the 1619 project is taught in virtually every public school and most private schools in the United States today. Uh, this has taken hold with astonishing rapidity and with uh, a complete contempt for uh, what I'll carefully call the, the traditional narrative of American history, but I mean something that's a, a lot more than just tradition. It's something that is founded in uh, the careful study of American history by generations of historians paying very close attention to minute detail. All of that has now been swept aside in favor of this uh, breathtaking and quite exciting new account of our history that depicts us as a, a land of white supremacy and nothing but. Yeah, and I think that's the real danger of the work like the 1619 Project being disseminated so widely in, in literally thousands of American schools is that while the general public, you know, as you mentioned a moment ago, is or maybe largely unaware of what it is or what its implications are, but students all over the country uh, are being um, introduced to this this curriculum or this, dare I say, indoctrination that's designed, it's literally designed to subvert our as you put it, our traditional understanding of ourselves as Americans. Uh, what is the, well, I, this may be rather self-evident, but what's the, what is the long-term danger of replacing that traditional understanding with this more corrosive, divisive narrative? Well, no nation can stand that hates itself to the extent that the 1619 Project succeeds in propagating its message. We are teaching racial division we're also teaching uh, self-loathing. We cannot respect a country that was founded on uh, deceit and on the effort to oppress people. And that loss of respect that is being inculcated into uh, generations of students now is, uh, is a, a kind of slow poison that we are swallowing. Uh, worse that the general public doesn't yet recognize what's happening. But if you talk to any student under age 18, uh, they've either paid no attention at all to what's going on around them, which no doubt is true in some cases, but they have been paying attention. They now know that the real history of America lies in uh, racial oppression. Uh, and there's a lot of things wrong with that story, but we can go into them if you wish. And I think it's about to get worse, actually, because this is not being disseminated just in schools, but... Um, Soon it will be coming in the entertainment arena because uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the New York Times have made lucrative deals with Hollywood, including with no less a luminary than Oprah Winfrey herself, uh, to create both fictional and non-fictional spinoffs of the 1619 Project. And once that happens, I'm afraid that our uh, cultural ignorance about our history and our cultural self-loathing will be cemented in place because it would you agree that young generations younger generations now get their history largely from movies and TV and not from books and history class? Uh, movies, TV, and social media. There's a lot of back and forth among people reinforcing each other's misunderstandings. And so, yes, 
I, I think that uh, uh, we are, we, to use your word, are cementing this story into place. It's very easy to propagate a myth, really, given the sophistication of our mass media. Um, what's being told here is a false story. We've seen this happen with other false stories. That is, uh, if you feed people a, a entertaining version of uh, the American founding with uh, rap lyrics via the Hamilton show, for example, it, it's extremely engaging. Is it true? Well, who cares? It's so engaging, we'd prefer it to the actual truth. So that kind of thing is uh, now a susceptibility of the American people. Uh, it's gotten there without our realizing it. Not that Americans have ever been you know, deeply scrupulous in paying attention to actual history. Uh, it was Henry Ford who said history is bunk, but we've also had uh, uh, the mythologization, mythologization, I can't quite say that word this morning, uh, of other bits of history. Parson Weems wrote the first biography of George Washington, which was offers, you know, the, the cherry tree, the throwing the dollar across the Potomac, that sort of thing was accepted by a lot of people. If it wasn't true, at least it was entertaining and it made Washington into a larger than life figure. So fake history has always persisted alongside real history, but we've attempted, and until recently, I think fairly successfully to sort the two out and we might want to pass along the story of uh, Washington chopping down the cherry tree and telling his father that he cannot tell a lie uh, because it does say something about who Washington was. But when we pass that story on, we also pass along the story, the reality. It was that there's no evidence to say it ever happened. It's just a way of talking about things. Um, I don't see that as part of the, uh, what's happening with the 1619 project. There's nobody around saying, well, this didn't really happen this way, but we want to tell this story because we want to entertain you. Um, I wouldn't think that's much of an improvement, but it would be some improvement. <laughs> well, yeah, I want to follow up a little bit on that, that notion of cultural susceptibility that you talked about, uh, which you call the willingness of a people to believe Oh, sorry, you, you write that the willingness of a people to believe the worst about themselves makes that people culturally susceptible to stories that disparage the accomplishments of past generations and demoralize the living. It seems like we've gone um, as a culture from a, a willingness to believe the best about ourselves, um, that sort of cultural susceptibility, to one in which we're willing to believe the worst of ourselves. Would you say that's that's true? Yes, I think that is true. And of course, uh, across my desk almost every week come several new important academic books, uh, many of them on history. Uh, I just uh, finished my uh, way through a, uh, a very dense tome titled uh, The uh, Indigenous Continent, which is about the uh, uh, Native Americans over the past 500 years. It's a work of deep scholarship, but it's also uh, engaged in this sort of counter-narrative telling. That is, uh, according to the author of that book, a scholar at uh, Oxford, I believe, uh, 
American colonialism was confined mostly to the coasts and for most of American history, the real story of what was going on had to do with the maneuvering of various tribes to maintain or expand their territory. So you could tell a whole history of America now, which doesn't quite erase the existence of European colonists, but, but treats that as a, an incidental minor thing, at least until the mid-19th century when the colonial power gets its uh, wind. Um, so yeah, we are in the process of learning how to, uh, if not entirely erase our past, rewrite it into a form that suits the temperament of the times, which is that uh, we're not a very honorable people. We've done little other than oppress uh, when we're not oppressing uh, people brought here involuntarily from Africa. We are oppressing the native inhabitants of the continent and anyone else to, on which we can get our hands. Um, so oppression with a large O is pretty much the, the whole history of who we are. When you're tired of dealing with Africans and Native Americans, then you can turn your attention to the oppression of women, of uh, immigrants from various parts of the world. Every, every story to be told has to be centered on that, uh, that key notion that we never respected the rights, the lives, the property, the liberty of other people. And it seems uh, that the, the problem for critics like yourself, people who try to, scholars who try to provide a corrective to this narrative, uh, the, the problem you're faced with, in fact, I'm going to read again from your work here. You write that um, the critic finds he is dealing with a work more akin to a religious revelation than to anything that respects the usual methods of historical investigation. The 1619 Project, though riddled with errors and knowing falsehoods, has accumulated power over readers by dint of telling a story that they want to hear and to believe. No amount of rational refutation will change that. How do you, when you're faced with, with that kind of willingness to reject the evidence presented by um, objective scholars, how can we push back against that kind of narrative that has a hold on people who consider critiques like yours to be just simply evidence of that narrative's validity? Well, we can only do what we can do. I, as a scholar, I tried to write a book that respected the evidence and that did not engage in polemic, at least not very much. Um, and it's been read by the people who've taken it up as that. It's a, I want to be fair-minded because I don't think you defeat uh, unfair-mindedness with uh, its mirror image. Um, that said, uh, I think there is a point at which uh, uh, maybe not the, the authors like Mary Graber and me who have uh, taken the, up the task of trying to refute the content of the uh, 1619 project, but the general public should be willing to express a certain degree of outrage at what is going on. Um, and I think we, we begin to see that in the rebellion among uh, parents around the country in school board elections and school board meetings uh, where they have spoken up, not always about the 1619 Project, but the critical race theory, the transgenderism, the, the whole suite of 
things which educators think should be imposed on students without even the parents' knowledge, let alone permission, has now become a, a point of uh, serious contention in our political process. And while I don't uh, see myself as a central instigator of that grassroots rebellion, I welcome it. And I also welcome the fact that some of those parents showing up at school board meetings are carrying copies of my book. Uh, uh, they, they, they want to get across the uh, idea that what is being presented as a legitimate counter-narrative by Nicole Hannah-Jones and her fellow writers uh, has been seriously challenged, and not simply by people on the political right, where I place myself vaguely, uh, but by serious scholars who are either traditional liberals or in some cases outright Marxists. Uh, the uh, World Socialist website uh, played a really important role in publishing interviews with serious historians in the early days of the uh, uh, response to the 1619 Project. And they've also published their own book uh, akin to, to mine. Um, so I, I should, out of fairness, give it a shout out. It's uh, titled The New York Times 1619 Project and the Racialist Falsification of History, um, edited by David North and Thomas McCommon. Um, well, you know, these guys are uh, old style Marxists who are uh, exercised, I would say, mostly by the notion that you can replace factual history by fable making. Uh, they think that uh, to tell the factual history, you should be paying a lot more attention to you know, materialist history uh, and that uh, replacing the, uh, the injustices of the class system with injustices of race and ethnicity is a bad idea. But North and McCammon are, are serious scholars and they put together a, a, a repost to the 1619 project quite different from what uh, Mary and I have done in our books. Uh, but it's important to say that uh, this, is, this stuff exists. There are people who are making a concerted effort across the political spectrum to push back against the, the travesty of myth-making in the name of history. Um, what can we do when people uh, put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 they're just not going to hear you or listen? Um, well, uh, you don't waste too much time in trying to extend uh, a debate with such people. I've tried repeatedly to get Nicole Hannah-Jones to even talk to me, and she doesn't. Occasionally, she'll tweet something out about uh, her critics, but for the most part, the New York Times project has taken the approach that anybody who disagrees with it uh, is racist and can be ignored. Um, so uh, if you can't address the people who are the instigators of the project, who can you address? Well, uh, we can address the school boards. Uh, since those are elected bodies, eventually they, they have some kind of responsiveness to the public. 
Are we going to address the teachers' unions, which have been complicit in expanding the 1619 project? They're less vulnerable to criticism, or they wouldn't even exist, but uh, we are uh, having to go to the places where we can get some kind of hearing. I also think, and I more than think, I've acted on the idea that uh, there is a place where our elected leaders in state legislatures and perhaps even the federal uh, the U.S. Congress um, should be paying attention to this. And there's been significant progress on that, but it's a, it's a complicated issue. One does not want to come out in a fashion that says, uh, uh, that, that can be read as outright censorship. Um, I cannot control what a history teacher in a secondary school someplace actually thinks about American history, nor will I want to. Um, but I think there is something to be said about setting the standards for what uh, such a teacher should be able to present as the factual history of the country. Can they find textbooks that support their uh, new mythologized view? Well, yeah, sure they can. Uh, the 1619 Project now exists as a hefty book. I'm holding it in my hands as we speak. It's about 600 pages long, um, full of footnotes, unlike the original 100-page uh, newspaper version of it. Um, it looks something like legitimate history. Only once you've dug into it can you discover that it is really a ballooned version of the earlier pseudo-history. Um, but could we ban that book in the nation's schools? I don't think so. Uh, but I think what we could do is say the following are the authorized history texts that can be used in the schools if teachers are going to try to supplement that with uh, subversive works of their own choosing, um, I wouldn't be willing to go so far as to say, uh, you can't do that or you're gonna be fired or sent off to jail or something like that. We have to deal with uh, the fact that this is now a live contention and people, uh, some of them of goodwill, think they're doing the right thing by presenting to their students uh, a counter narrative. Well, okay, let them present the counter-narrative within bounds, but make sure that the counter-narrative is not presented exclusively or to the favorite leftist word in a privileged manner. That is, if you, if you want to teach American history, uh, let's teach the, what amounts to a standard history of the United States. And after you've done that, you can bring on the fact that there are these uh, people on the side who disagree with that standard history and have an alternative version of it. A new origin story, as the title of the, the new longer version of the 1619 Project. Well, it's a new origin story that happens to be factually false. Um, can, we, can we trust, uh, oh, say, 15, 16, 17-year-olds to prefer being told the truth or being able to study original documents and discern the truth to this new, what amounts to a kind of comic book version of uh, 
uh, American history. You know, we, we do have a comic book version of world history now with uh, the Black Panther and the mythical kingdom of uh, Wakanda in Africa. The 1619 Project is not far different from that. Uh, what Nicole Hannah-Jones says happened in August of 1619 didn't actually happen, uh, or at least not as she tells it. Uh, that's a story that I, I gladly tell people, but there's a, uh, there's a resistance to paying attention to something that happened so long ago. But let me take a moment and just try again. The 1619 Project presents slavery in the New World as something that was invented one August day in 1619. Before that, apparently it didn't exist. You won't find anything in the 1619 Project about the reality that slavery was, first of all, an indigenous institution in the United States. Those uh, 500 or so tribes in North America, most of them practiced slavery. They captured slaves from other tribes. Uh, slaves were treated in sometimes uh, far worse ways than uh English slave owners treated them. People could be dismembered or they could be eaten. Um, they, the torture of slaves was a kind of sport for the, uh, the Iroquois, for example. Um, but slaves used as slave labor were also part of indigenous America. Uh, tribes that practiced agriculture frequently made use of captives to do much of the hard work for them. Um, now, Okay, so slavery was already here. It also was ad adapted in a form to accommodate the arrival of Europeans. Uh, we have a slave narrative from a Spanish figure who was uh, uh, captured in Florida in, uh, I think it's 1517, uh, and traded as a slave among a number of tribes until he finally escaped and made his way uh, to Mexico City. Uh, so Europeans were subject to indigenous slavery as well. And if the people in Jamestown were interested in the institution of slavery, they could have copied it from their neighbors. It was right there in front of them all the time. Uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese had spent more than a century importing African slaves to the New World. They also, of course, were enslaving native peoples. So slavery was going on in every which direction. But most of that slavery uh, went to the Caribbean, to South America, Brazil in particular, and to Mexico. Uh, and there were some early attempts by the Spanish to establish slavery in what is now the United States, in Georgia and in Florida. Those failed, but slavery was here on the coast of North America uh, for about 100 years practiced by Europeans before the Jamestown event. So what is the significance of what happened in Jamestown? A uh, English pirate ship under a Dutch flag, the ship was called the White Lion, intercepted along with its sister ship, a convoy of Spanish slave ships headed to Mexico. They captured one of the ships, they took most of the slaves on board and sold them in Bermuda, a 
but they had a handful left over. We don't know the exact number, 20 some is what the records say. And they brought those captives to uh, Jamestown or the port near Jamestown where it traded them for food and supplies. And then the pirates left. What happened to those individuals? Well, Jamestown did not recognize the institution of slavery. It did have law rules, but it did not have slavery. So it converted the slaves into, as best we can tell, indentured servants, along with quite a few Europeans who were in Jamestown as indentured servants. The difference between slavery and indentured servitude might not look that great if you're just looking at the moment, but a slave is a slave for life unless manumitted. A indentured servant served a term, usually seven years, and was then set free. We know what happened to those slaves that arrived on board the White Lion and a second group of slaves that came a little bit later. Uh, they were in fact set free. They intermarried with the white population. In many cases, they gained ownership of land. We know this was not just a fiction because we have a record of legal cases in which disputes between the former slaves and the white residents uh, were brought to court and the slaves prevailed in court. They got justice. So whatever happened in 1619, it's a little bit murky. We'll allow that. But it certainly wasn't the beginning of chattel slavery in the New World. That had existed long, long before 1619. And, then, and even then, 1619 was not an instance of it. It was just an instance of uh, the importation of people involuntarily, um, but they were relatively well treated. Certainly uh, arriving in Jamestown, maybe not the most pleasant place in North America, but still was a whole lot better than being on a sugar plantation in the Caribbean or being sent to the mines in Mexico where a life of a few years was about the most that could have been expected. And uh, subsequent freedom was off the table. Um, so that new origin story told by Nicole Hannah Jones and friends starts out with a whopping falsehood. Slavery didn't begin here. It didn't begin even in the later form uh, in 1619. That lay about 50 years into the future. Uh, we're being told a false history and we're being told that false history in a manner which I think most historians would have to call uh, perversely sentimental. Uh, if you've ever seen the television advertisement that the New York Times mounted for the 1619 project, it's full of swooning music and murmured voices and this, uh, this image of, of uh, oh, what a great tragedy it is, but uh, it's also elevating these individuals to uh, a status of tragic victims were, in fact, not tragic victims so much as the rare winners in a terrible institution. They, they were enslaved. They were captured in Angola and sold. They were shipped across the Atlantic in deplorable conditions. But and they were the winners. They gained their freedom.
there, there's so much more to talk about, uh, about the 1619 Project and about your book, especially 1620. But I want to make sure that we get to your new book your, or, or your more recent book, Wrath, America Enraged, which is a great title, by the way. Uh, in the forward to the new paperback edition of your book, 1620, you make a connection between the 1619 Project and, and the subject of your new book, Wrath. You mentioned that the 1619 Project actually helped usher in the world that you write about in Wrath. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Well, the 1619 Project was meant to accelerate and intensify racial division. And it took hold in a number of ways but probably the most conspicuous connection between the two books was what happened after the death of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis in uh, 2020. I'm sure everybody listening has vivid memories of this period. Uh, Within days of Floyd's death, there was a riot in Minneapolis. Uh, Buildings were burned, people were hurt. And then that riot was emulated all across America, many small towns as well as big cities. I'm talking to you from New York City, and I vividly remember seeing Madison Avenue and uh, uh, Fifth Avenue boarded up for for miles around. Um, What happened? Well, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted that she would be honored to call the the ensuing riots the 1619 riots. Uh, And if you remember looking at the uh, monuments that were toppled all over the place, in many cases they were spray-painted 1619 as they lay on the ground. Uh, There was an active connection between the rioters uh, and the thought that what they were doing, they were doing in the name of uh, justice for the revenging America for the oppression that began in 1619. Now, uh, who actually did the spray painting? I don't know if these were uh, uh, angry African-Americans doing it or their copious number of white uh, supporters who likewise were suddenly uh, overflowing with outrage at um, uh, the injustices revealed by the 1619 Project. But in any case, uh, it timed with the frustrations of the great COVID-inspired shutdown came this uh, eruption of ill feeling uh, that labeled itself the 1619 Project. Uh, That's not my doing. Um, So, wrath was uh, on the scene, uh, enacted by people thinking of themselves as uh, agents of some kind of uh, revenge against uh, America's past. Uh, What happened there, of course, led onwards in September of 1620. Um, I was one of several people invited to the National Archives to talk about um, the teaching of American history. Uh, President Trump was there too, and he gave prepared remarks in which he said that the 
uh, effort to put 1619 Project into the schools had to be countered with the creation of what he called a 1776 Commission, um, uh, which, uh, though announced that day, wasn't really formed until uh, December. So in the, the very last days of the Trump administration, uh, the 1776 commission came out with a, it's called a, something like about a 30 page preface to what the teaching of American history might look like. Because all uh, left-minded people in the country instantly denounced this thing as a sham and the commission uh, naturally disappeared with the inauguration of uh, our new president. So uh, the effort there pushed back. But of course, by that time, a great many Americans, and I will have to include myself, even that, if that means uh, this podcast gets uh, vanished down the memory hole, believed that the 2020 presidential election was marred by various kinds of misdoing. Uh, some of it was data manipulation, some of it was false votes, but in any case, uh, it left a large number of Americans, uh, polls were suggesting it was in the range of about 60%, thinking that that election was marred. Uh, the result of that was, of course, the riot on Capitol Hill on January 6th, 2021, and uh, the response from, again, the, the major media and so on that treated this riot as a sedition, as an attempt to overthrow the government and so on. Um, so we had reciprocal wrath taking place. Uh, an American left thinking that uh, it had rightly won an election and rightly belonged in power and was incensed that anyone could doubt that. Uh, a press uh, led by the New York Times that referred to any doubts about the validity of the election as the big lie. Uh, uh, President Trump continuing his uh, efforts to establish that he had been done an injustice. Um, and the fury that was uh, developing among people on the right in America that uh, our country was being stolen from us. Uh, and uh, when I wrote Wrath, of course, it was before the midterm elections, but I was pinning some hope on the restoration of justice through a legitimate 2022 uh, election. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what to say at this point. I come away from the 2022 election with doubt. Uh, I think that some elections were handled uh, fairly. The voting procedures were established in Florida, for example, where anybody who was uh, clearly a registered voter could vote and did vote. Uh, but we have other states. Arizona is conspicuous where very strange things happened and uh, we don't quite know what happened. Um, it's difficult to control the election of every congressional district in the country, 
it's not so difficult to interfere with the election of senators and, and presidents. So right now, one of the outcomes of the great shutdown, which provided the excuse for uh, massive absentee balloting, the use of drop boxes, um, the extended voting on either side of election day, uh, which opened the door for uh, suspicious activity. Now, whether anyone can say with finality that uh, uh, elections were stolen, uh, I, I leave to others. I do find it, um, as many others do, uh, a matter of incredulity that uh, President Biden, without campaigning, spending much of his time in his office, uh, I mean, his basement, uh, was able to gain, we're told, something on the order of 80 million votes, more than any other presidential candidate has ever won. Um, so uh, one looks at that, and one looks at uh, Trump's performance, where he officially gained about 74 million votes, um, and which was also extraordinarily high. And we would have to think that what happened in the fall of 2020 was uh, this fantastic anomaly where uh, tens of millions of people voted who had never voted before and probably will never vote again. Uh, and they all happened to favor the candidate who hadn't campaigned. Uh, why they did that? Because they were uh, infested with a visceral hate of uh, Trump and were willing to vote for anybody to get rid of Trump. Well, I think there are people who felt that way, for sure. Uh, I've met a, quite a few of them. Um, but I'm not persuaded that they actually prevailed in the election. Um, I came away thinking, well, mischief happened. Let's just call it that. And uh, the um, the result of mischief happening and people finding themselves entirely unable to even express that opinion publicly uh, with or without um, evidence or with or without deep knowledge of voting irregularities, but suppression of their ability to express themselves and their sense that their um, government by the people and for the people had been uh, captured by a ill-willed um, political cabal has created the basic condition for what I'm calling wrath. Of course, I'm trying to make a distinction. I don't know how well this sits with uh, readers of the book or people in general between anger and wrath. I think anger can express itself um, and usually once expressed can work towards some sort of resolution. Wrath is what happens when any form of expression and possible resolution is blocked. And the wrathful person thinks, I, I ha now have nothing to lose, but by uh, rebelling against uh, this order that has been imposed on me. Wrath is the stuff of revolutions. Are, are we in a revolutionary situation in the U.S.? I don't think so, but I think we're working our way towards that. Um, and, and maybe the results of the 20, 
22 election and the rise of a, uh, a Republican-dominated or controlled House of Representatives will be sufficient to let some of the ill-feeling relax a bit in hopes of a, a better deal, um, or maybe not, because we're also seeing that um, our, our kind of shadow government in which we have uh, a president who is obviously uh, incompetent but is being used as a prop by um, unnamed people, we can only guess at that, to impose on the country a kind of radical left regime uh, is leaving vast numbers of Americans unsettled at best as to what kind of country we are in. Uh, and that, that touches on a great many issues. The, the open border with Mexico in which we are being flooded by many millions of illegal immigrants who are being uh, farmed out across the country uh, the, the efforts to uh, uh, destroy the, the spirit and much of the practice of the U.S. military by imposing on it uh, the woke restrictions, not just on race, but on COVID and other matters, uh, transgenderism. Um, this uh, debacle that we faced in Afghanistan, which has not been forgotten by most Americans, uh, all of this points to a government that appears to be deeply opposed to the best will and best wishes of the American people, and yet we're powerless to do much of anything about it. Um, and elections, of course, are a crucial part of this. I doubt that there's ever been an election in the country, perhaps other than George Washington, that hasn't had some elements of electoral mischief in it, um, but never has it risen to the level of uh, uh, sheer effrontery that we see now in which uh, obvious fraud is uh, ignored by the mainstream press and the complaints of the people, the oppressed, may I call them that, uh, are uh, shunted aside. Um, so, but, but let me be clear, I think there's now a intensification of our cultural divisions. Uh, some of that is racial, and it didn't begin with Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project, but she a, a major uh, uh, proponent of it and helped expand it. Um, some of it arose from the ill will that uh, President Trump inspired with uh, the, the people that we call the deep state or uh, just Americans who see themselves as progressive in spirit um, and who loathed him both for his uh, ill manners and for his policies. Uh, so a kind of wrath was emerging there when Trump was inaugurated in 2016. Uh, Washington, D.C. was the site of a progressive riot of which the press made little account, but there it was. Um, the, in the run-up to the 
2020 election, uh, we were repeatedly warned by national political figures on the left that should Trump prevail again, the riots that had occurred earlier that year were going to come back with even greater intensity. So we had not only riots, but the threat of more riots, the, the firebombing of police cars. We had the, the national movement to delegitimize policing, as in uh, defund the police, or in other words, uh, neutralize them, uh, which in major cities like mine, New York City, uh, had uh, a dire effect. That is, uh, the breakdown of law and order continues to this day. So what was going on there? Well, there was resentment among some people at the petty injustices and sometimes not so petty injustices of uh, police officers uh, targeting blacks. Um, but it was coupled with a profoundly false story about uh, how the deaths of uh, black individuals being pursued by police or in police custody was some kind of remarkable and large number, whereas in fact the number is uh, minuscule and contrasts with the horrendous loss of life in uh, black-on-black shootings um, in major cities, including New York, Chicago stands out. Now, uh, there is there's a great deal to be said about the confusion that sets in when a narrative, Nicole's happy word, uh, gets established that runs counter to visible facts. Um, nobody living in uh, inner city neighborhoods really believes that the big problem is too many police or too vigorous policing. They believe the problem is gang violence and also general lawlessness. Well, they believe that, but they don't vote that. Um, so we're, we're in this odd world where we are faced with a breakdown of the possibility of um, fair-minded exchange of views when um, when people now try to talk about the uh, uh, the policing issue they will be silenced if they don't uh, stick to the, the new narrative our current mayor here in New York um, acknowledged the existence of uh, the problem of lawlessness, and he's now denounced by the New York Times for having, uh, by speaking up, resulted in a whole bunch of Republican victories in congressional races. So the price of speaking up is that you're helping the other side, you're a kind of traitor. Well, I'm, I'm at a loss to think that the the culture wars are going to go away until we can learn some way to speak about our differences that does not result in um, a concerted effort to uh, forcibly shut people up 
either by denying them access to the media, including social media, uh, or by punishing them, throwing them in jail, uh, uh, or treating their actions as potentially criminal when the Attorney General of the United States thinks that uh, parents speaking up at school board meetings are engaged in criminal activity, uh, the, the problem just intensifies. So I wrote this graph uh, that says, all this stuff is happening, it's going to have consequences. I would prefer that we do not descend into a new civil war. There are people who say that we are, or may, or, and some even who say that we should. Uh, but I think that the, the better way forward for us is to discover once again, uh, how we can argue things out, maybe intensely, but at least argue them rather than be uh, muzzled. The, uh, and I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, you, you write in the book, Wrath, that uh, one of your intentions in writing it was to you hoped to teach readers, quote, how to put some righteous anger to good use in the effort to save our country and our civilization from an approaching barbarism, unquote. And that, that sounds like something I often say, which is that what we're facing today, what we're engaged in is a struggle for the soul and the future of our civilization. Is that Does that just sound too melodramatic or would you agree with that? Uh, well, both. I, I talk about civilization a lot with the uh, uh, my members and supporters, and I do think that ultimately that's what we're talking about here, uh, a civilization that uh, brings into its uh, populace the habits and the desire for self-restraint and the understanding that the good things in our lives depend on uh, finding these paths to not dispensing with anger, but making sure that it does not become our master. And um, so, yes, why is civilization at stake? Well, that, that word civilization can be a little bit blurry, but I'm, I'm an anthropologist by training, spent years teaching it. Um, anthropologists either don't talk about civilization or they use it promiscuously to apply to um, any society that has some degree of order to it. Um, I think we can do better than my profession does. Civilization uh, refers to a, a complex of ideals and values and actual knowledge, uh, procedures, law, uh, that is transmitted generation to generation. Um, now, it's true that maybe all societies do some of that, that we are a literate society, have been for several thousand years. Um, so what we know about our past is uh, inscribed uh, in Egyptian monuments and clay tablets from the Middle East, but most of all, it's inscribed in the words that have come down through us through the Hebrew Bible, through the Christian New Testament, through the uh, writings of uh, Herodotus, the other great Greeks, Aristotle, the, the great Romans. Um, this is a tradition that is thickly interwoven uh, and that represents 
the best thoughts, the most strenuous efforts to discern the truth, the ideals that have animated people now for thousands of years. Now, that tradition, as uh, uh, I guess Ronald Reagan was reminding us, uh, there's nothing automatic about it. It can be destroyed, and it really takes no more than a single generation to destroy it because its life is being uh, transmitted generation to generation. Um, transmitting it generation to generation is never easy. Teachers have a hard calling. Children are, for the most part, natural barbarians. They have impulses. They have desires. Um, they don't necessarily have the patience to learn uh, the things that really matter to adults. So adults need to be both uh, patient and shrewd and committed and clever to finding ways to engage young people um, in the pursuit of something that's better than um, where can I get my next video game, my next candy bar, my next exciting experience on the playground. Um, we do know how to do those things. We've been doing them successfully as a country for several hundred years. Uh, there is a culture that we have that could be passed along, but it's always in uh, competition with uh, other things we could be doing. Uh, we could be going out uh, slaughtering vast herds of buffalo because it's easy to do and kind of fun, or we could be uh, engaged in stealing land from the Plains Indians. We could be uh, watching lots and lots of Hollywood movies. Uh, we could be pursuing the, uh, the pleasures of pornography. Uh, all those things that compete with uh, what's uh, at stake in a civilization are always there. Uh, they're always luring people, especially young people. So it requires a concerted effort to push back and say, these are the things that really matter. Now, who makes that concerted effort? Well, it always starts with the family, um, and then it extends from the family into the schools. Uh, why are we in this situation? Well, to, to dig deeper into it, I would say we're faced with uh, a serious assault on the family. Um, um, and, and oddly, it now involves breaking up the alliance between the family and the schools and putting them at odds with each other. The school teachers now think they have a, a better hand to play. And if uh, a young child shows any interest at all in uh, the same sex, he's going to, he or she will be encouraged to uh, think about uh, uh, becoming transgender or uh, uh, exploring homosexuality, things that most parents, at least in the past, would have said no to are now being said to in our schools. Um, but then there's the problem with the parents themselves and that we now face a society in which an extraordinary number of children uh, grow up with a single parent, in some cases, or no parent. Um, the, the traditions by which uh, parents learned how to be good parents have been themselves compromised by a willful uh, desire to present children with a maximum amount of liberty and self-discovery. Well, children do need some liberty and self-discovery, but most of all, they need good parenting. 
which puts limits on uh, the child's self-exploration. Uh, don't go walking on the railroad tracks is probably better than uh, enjoy the liberty of discovering what a locomotive barreling down at you at 80 miles an hour looks like. There's just there's just too much to talk about in your books to squeeze into one podcast episode. I'd love to have you back again, Peter. It's just, um, it's just so much more I want to ask and talk about. Uh, let me just ask you finally one real quick question. You've already kind of touched on this, but are you optimistic at all that we can recover some degree of self-restraint and civility as a culture uh, in our, our, political interaction and our cultural interaction too, or, or is this what you call the new anger, this performative wrath? Is that here to stay? Are you optimistic that we can um, defuse all that and, and pull back a little bit? Well, my answer to that kind of depends on what day you're asking me and what uh, latest outrage is uh, on my mind. But uh, in my more temperate moments, I say something like this, that the civilization has persisted in various forms for, let's say, 3,000 years. Uh, during that 3,000 years, there have been times of really steep cultural decline um, and when things appear to be breaking up uh, and probably to the point where they're not going to be uh, uh, put back together anytime soon. Um, while there are many points there, let's just choose one that's probably most famous, which is the breakup of the Roman Empire and Europe's descent into an age of barbarism, which we used to call the Dark Ages, but now we've decided no age is truly dark and a period of uh, warlords uh, having at each other in Europe and turning the population to uh, serfs wasn't dark at all. Uh, well, that out of that kind of decline, uh, something emerged. Um, I guess the, at least the old word for it was Christendom. Uh, slowly, somehow, uh, bits and pieces of the classical past, along with the rise of uh, Christianity, uh, began to restore uh, Western civilization. It may have even synthesized Western civilization in a new way, um, and out of the uh, the high Middle Ages and Renaissance, the Enlightenment uh, came a new version of our civilization, still perfectly capable of doing horrendous things. Uh, the Holocaust happened within the civilization that that we now inhabit. Now inhabit. Um, so. I don't have the kind of optimism that says our entire past was a glorious story of wonderful things and that we'll get back on track if we just let it. Um, nothing happens if we just let it. We have to be willing to make a really concerted effort to discover what was best in our past and make sure that that carries on to the future. Um, can that happen on a mass level? Uh, and my answer is, well, it can, but it probably won't. Uh, we've had uh, you know, two great awakenings in American history in which there was a serious revival of uh, Christian commitment. 
uh, that made a difference in their times. Uh, the uh, I don't really see any reason to think that something like that is going to happen anytime soon. What I do think can happen is that uh, a relatively small minority of people can go a long way towards preserving what's best in a civilization. And what counts right now is the, the act of preservation, uh, not so much the notion that we should be hopeful that there's going to be a great restoration anytime soon, but that those of us who care about these things uh, need to be sort of provisioning uh, the future. Um, my, my wife likes to say, uh, help your future self. And I like to say, yes, uh, we should be helping uh, the future self of our civilization. Uh, it, it will recover in time. It's a very powerful set of ideas. Um, and those ideas and the ideals behind them uh, can reassert themselves, but they probably will have to skip a couple generations to get there. I don't have a lot of optimism about uh, the people who've been uh, populating the ranks of the so-called educated over the last quarter century or more, maybe over the last 50 years. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's going to be a self-selected group of people who have an almost fanatical zeal to make sure that we don't lose the most important parts of our past. Now, no one individual can be held responsible for uh, uh, all the important things that make up our civilization's legacy. So it takes uh, the Hillary Clinton idea, it takes a village, but in this case, it takes a, a village of, uh, of people who are somehow accidentally well-educated or have become self-educated by the hard effort of doing a lot of reading and a lot of uh, going to museums and symphony orchestras and things like that to, to fall in love with uh, the best uh, cultural expressions of our civilization and also to be committed to what it takes to continue the enlightenment versions of our civilization, the pursuit of rigorous knowledge through science and math, um, the preservation of our um, religious heritage matters as well. And as I've already mentioned, the preservation of our family, we can all do those things and we can all do at least one of those things um, if we're inspired to do them. So how optimistic am I? I'm optimistic that there are uh, tens of thousands, perhaps millions of Americans who, who do care and who have some idea that they can make a contribution to preserving what's best in our civilization for a future time when uh, it can reestablish itself uh, not just as a, a minority pursuit, but as something that will capture the hearts, the imaginations, uh, souls of people who want to carry on uh, for their progeny uh, a better world than the one they found. We're not getting there by way of cultivating wrath, resentment, division, uh, um, and the, the various toxins that 
we've allowed into our bloodstream by treating uh, uh, men as uh, full of toxic masculinity, of treating uh, boys and girls as of indeterminate sex uh, until they decide to be one thing or the other. We're not getting there by licensing people to pursue their whims uh, with drugs or other um, intoxicants, whether they be physical or, or social. Uh, we, those things will have to burn themselves out. Now, if we're lucky that burning out and the building up of a new and better civilization will occur without our having a massive world war uh, or facing uh, the danger of uh, further uh, Chinese uh, architected mass epidemics or nuclear war or uh, other forms of mass destruction. I don't underrate the possibility of those things. Uh, malevolent actors are out there. Uh, they, they don't want us to thrive. Um, there are a great many Americans who are either indifferent to those dangers uh, or in some perverse way, welcome them. And on, on that score, I think I do need to add something else. I, while I, I rate uh, the danger of uh, 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 President Xi's uh, malevolent interests in world domination as, as real and important, I think the greater danger we face right now is self-immolation through the uh, twin cults we have developed. One I've mentioned several times already, the, the transgenderism, the destruction of the difference between the sexes as a positive thing. Um, the other one that I haven't mentioned has been uh, uh, the cult of climate catastrophism. Um, on which I, I've spent a good deal of time on this topic as well. I, I simply think that uh, the belief that the world is in grave peril of irreversible climate damage brought on by human use of uh, carbon-based fuels uh, is a myth uh, of every bit as much uh, dubiousness as the 1619 myth. Um, uh, so if we convince a whole generation of children that the Industrial Revolution was a mistake, uh, that we all need to get with Greta and uh, work for uh, the institution of some kind of uh, communism minus the material basis of energy production, or if we believe in the wish fulfillment of uh, supplying the energy needs of a, an advanced civilization via uh, windmills and uh, solar collectors, then we really do face extinction as a civilization. Uh, that has to be stopped in one form or another. Um, we're not really getting any help in that from the actual producers of energy who have become uh, Stockholm Syndrome institutions. Uh, we're, we, we do face this issue that... Um, the only way that we ways in which we can currently meet our energy needs are through fossil fuels and nuclear energy. Um, we are demeaning one and refusing to even consider the other. Uh, the result of that will be catastrophe 
not just for us, but for the whole world. Uh, the, the third world needs energy every bit as much as we do, and denying them the use of fossil fuels uh, and with, with make-believe solutions such as transfer payments from the first world uh, won't, won't get us there. So uh, I'm just giving you the, the lengthy answer to the question of how optimistic can I be? Well, I can be optimistic on one side, but when I look at the uh, uh, generation of young people who bought the climate catastrophe fantasy hook, line, and sinker, I'm not at all optimistic. Yeah, I, I hear that. I totally agree. Well said. Peter Wood, great stuff. Thanks for bringing your insights to the right take. Great books also. Uh, I want to urge everybody to get a copy of 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, and also Wrath, America Enraged. Both of those are just really necessary reading for understanding what's happening at the intersection of politics and culture. Dr. Wood, please keep up the great work and come back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.